0: Alrighty, Hello, everyone. So this week is uh, definitely a big one. You know, as uh, some of you may know, is the big launch of this book that I have. It's called Selling Your Startup. It's been four years in the making. And essentially, it's a guide on what are the immediate steps that you need to take from point A to point C so that you have a full outcome. I mean, there's like over 20 founders there backing it up that have sold their companies for over 500 million each. And I think that uh, you're all going to very much enjoy I mean, the main reason why I came out with that book is because I couldn't find anything when I was in the process of the acquisition of my last company. So I said, hey, let's put an end to the madness. And that is the result, selling your startup. So it's now out, available on Amazon and anywhere else. So just go out and get your copy. So without further ado, I'd like to talk about our interview today. Our guest, he's a... He's amazing. His story is really remarkable. I think that we're going to be learning a lot from his journey. Uh, he's done it multiple times, and I think that what he's up to now is very, very meaningful, especially with everything that's going on in the world. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Robert Picconi. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Alejandro. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure to be here.
0: So you were born in San Diego. So how was life growing up in in Southern California?
1: Well, it was uh, a beautiful place. Still is, I think, one of the one of the best places to live. And uh, I had a busy, busy upbringing. Uh, grew up spending a lot of my free time working in uh, in a family business, but uh, that served me well later on. So, so really good.
0: That's amazing. And then, obviously, you maybe that led you to really loving the business side of it, the financing side of it, and that led you to packing up the bags and going to Notre Dame.
1: Yeah, you know, when you grow up in Southern California, a lot of people never leave there because it's uh, such a beautiful place. And I, I really wanted to get out of the state, and uh, I, I chose Notre Dame because it was a smaller school and Catholic schools so had a good foundation in, uh, in faith that I, I appreciated as well. And so, yeah, it was a, I think a very good decision. So, so why, why diversified energy? What really led
0: you into that direction after your under
1: I was lucky enough to do an, an internship my junior year with mobile oil and in the UK. So I, uh, I had done a year of foreign study my sophomore year, and then I had done a an internship in the summer with uh, mobile oil out of London. And uh, I, I really, really enjoyed that sector. That was for the um, the, the, the oil and refining side. And so uh, I really enjoyed the global opportunities and working across you know multiple lines of business in a single company a lot of a lot of learning and and global so that's that's what led me to uh to Amico
0: and obviously there you know you were exposed to global projects you shifted from the finance side to the manufacturing side but one thing led to the next and eventually you you then landed doing your MBA program so so at what point did you think that perhaps doing an MBA was the right uh, the right choice for you
1: well, you know, I thought I was going to do it even earlier. And that's this was back in the 90s when the, uh, sort the mid to latter 90s, um, I was in my mid to just getting to my later 20s. And and I was really interested in tech. And I thought taking a break from the big corporate company would be a really interesting thing to do and sort of evaluate through, you know, a top five MBA program, intersect with a lot of different people from different sectors and sort of step back and decide, do I want to jump in to tech? And uh, so that was, uh, I think, a major, uh, a major factor uh, for me that that led me to do that. And I was getting such a great career experience. The reason I did it later, I didn't do it till I was, uh, I entered at 29 years old, is I was getting great experiences all over the world to go and manage global projects, work in different countries in Europe, for example, after being in manufacturing. So my experience I was getting was so so great and global and managing people and advancing my career that outweighed going back to MBA school. And then I found the right opportunity in uh, in the later 90s, in 1999.
0: And shifting, shifting obviously, industries, you know, is not something that people would typically do, you know, after coming out of business school, they would either go back to what they were doing or starting their own business. But in this case, you actually went into telecommunications. So why making that
1: shift? Yeah, I, I, a few reasons. One is I was fascinated in the late 90s and getting in, and you recall sort of the the height of telecom back there they still call it the bubble uh, i think some of us that are old enough remember that uh and uh i was just fascinated by the disruption that that new technology was creating it was disintermediating business models and companies and it really it really taught me about speed and um uh and how important uh the business models and and financing is i mean that was a time when vcs were financing these companies at huge valuation so it also you know living through that you you understand also the, the downside of you know a, a lot of uh, euphoria in the market that leads to valuations and when things change boom so i i came out of mba school in 2000 june i graduated and that was right at the beginning when that the market started to shake but but i was really interested in being a part of that transformation in in technology and and how that was changing how we how we do business and and how the world operates and talking about um...
0: How the world operates, I mean you there had the opportunity I mean you were recruited to really run you know an entire company there, so I mean, how was that like? because obviously this is a kind of like a different responsibility, different you know leadership skill sets to a certain degree, but I'm sure that was a kind of like a like a like an incredible uh I would say wealth of knowledge that you were able to acquire.
1: Yeah, you know, it was interesting the the move into Bell Labs and Lucent, and where I it it was there that I I grew the career into moving from managing some of the large engineering groups to getting into running my own division. So I actually became for the first time the the head and a VP and general manager of uh, one of the uh, a large business in the broadband area of networking, Uh, and and that just opened up you know a lot of things uh, in both my career development and growth, and uh, that resulted in one of the at the time you know, the largest, um, telecom merger between Alcatel and, and Lucent, uh, that was a, that was a big one. Um, so a a transatlantic one, my second one, actually my career, the first one being Amoco and BP. So, um, and that's what led to my, my first company experience at Spirant where I was recruited, um, to actually run and be the president of a, you know, of a, of a standalone public entity. Uh, so it was a amazing seven or eight years for sure.
0: And during those uh, seven or eight years, also, you got to experience being a father of uh, young children, in this case, um, you know, a fun factor for, for the people that are watching and listening, eight children, and you were actually, actually were one of the first ones to probably have quadruplets, you know, in your region. I mean, it's that that's mind blowing. I mean, they, people say that, that kids are to a certain degree like startups, but there is no exit. And you only break even when you get to sleep at night. But, man,
1: wow, what a journey for you. Yeah, you know, I, this is a great story. And uh, and I'll never forget, of course, when you find out, of course, where you're expecting one child and you, you're told by the doctor that you not only have a, a multiple but four. But I was actually 27 years old expecting a second child. So this is and I was applying to graduate schools. At the time to go into MBA school, and I was living in Europe uh, on that one of the international oil projects. and I'll just never forget. Uh, you know when you w- when you're told and what I found out and my wife and I found out about that it, it going from one to five children, it was a a really big deal. And then going into MBA school and graduate school, which was always on my radar to do. Um, but still, you know, one thing I'll, I'll share with you, it was an amazing experience. I I must say I don't remember the first year so much. It's a little foggy after the quads were born uh <laughs> not a lot of story, but uh, uh, but I will tell you it I, I wouldn't change a thing because it really you know it's it's interesting and, and you know you have children as well it really it tends to focus you and, and bring other priorities to the table and uh, and really motivate you I think to uh, uh, and around your purpose in life you know beyond what maybe some of your personal career goals are thinking more holistically about those goals in the context of a responsibility to be a father and and parents to children and um, and yes you, as you rightfully say eight children so uh, I think some of the people listening to this might say wait and then you had more so and then, and then you had three more after the five and yeah we we uh, continued and and uh, had kids over the next five to seven years but uh, anyway it's been a fantastic experience and I say I would say part and parcel or right along the way with uh, growing companies and businesses um, you know uh, supporting and and being sort of a leader of a family and and uh, in, in building and supporting uh you know the children to uh to be the best they can be. that's amazing god bless so so
0: going back here to the to the to kind of like where you were at so here you actually did another shift. so you went from telecommunications into healthcare. I mean at this point you were recruited by a private equity firm and basically you were involved in
1: putting together this transaction so um so tell us about that deal. Yeah, that was my first role with private equity. And it, it was one of those where um, it wasn't a part of an initial purchase. So this was one with an asset they owned that is happenly, you know, as frequently happens with private equity. Sometimes things change and the business needs to be revamped for growth um, that eventually leads to a sale of the business. So I came in and I'd say in uh, one that had been uh, run for a little over three years, and they were looking to sort of change the trajectory, do some restructuring. And and, and get the company back on a growth uh, trajectory. so I, I really found that I love that type of work. I, I did that in some of the businesses in the public you know for the large public companies well but uh, I, I really liked the opportunity to have that be on my shoulders in, in leading a, a team to go get that done and, and rolling your sleeves up uh, and as you know in the private equity world it is a um, it is an EBITDA focused you know profitability within a certain time frame toward an outcome. Uh, and so it's a, I would say, a, a higher pressure environment. I had some of that from running Spirant Communications because I, I was hired before that by a hedge fund to come in and, and restructure that company. So th- this one I, I really enjoyed and was something that after two and a half years, we got things in a space that led to a, a very successful double-digit EBITDA multiple outcome for, um, for uh, Berkshire Partners, which was a private equity firm, to a, a strategic, in this case, uh, Aramark Healthcare in the, in the healthcare sector.
0: And in your case, I mean, what a what an incredible shift of of gears and 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 segments. So you go from diversified energy to telecommunications to healthcare. Have you experienced to certain degree being able to apply what people call institutional uh, knowledge transfer, which is where you're grabbing whatever you've learned from one industry and applying it to a new different one, where it kind of like gives you an edge over everyone
1: else. Have you yeah. have you experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's been, Alejandro, fundamental to my success in 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 moving in different industries and within different transactions. And you know, there's a lot of things about industries that are common and some things are unique uh depending on the domain or uh you know the, the business model or the competitor dynamics. Um and I think moving from diversified energy and then into telecom very fast-paced technology driven. Where you know it's you, you either move or innovate or be disintermediated, and then getting into a, a sector that in healthcare that uh, I think having those skill sets and, and dealing with different situations uh, was important. But there were some common threads, for example, leadership and people, and and being able to lead and build teams and and create an effective environment for people to be successful. Um, and, and really, those general manager skill sets, which I think are you know these are the toughest. Tools, I think, to have around, you know, understanding market, being able to translate technology into real business opportunity, leading and building teams. Um, so, so these are the things. Just and through some mistakes along the way, of course, you learn, uh, and you put things into practice to where you can, you know, you, you can start running and building your own companies and 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 leading those on your own. So,
0: I mean, obviously, you have an extensive career here, and you were talking about leading and and building teams. What would you say are have been your three biggest lessons around that?
1: I think one thing is, um, is on, uh, don't make assumptions, I think, before um, spending the time to roll your sleeves up and get into the details. So I think one is, as you're entering new situations, I think it's important to take the requisite time to listen and not speak. Uh, And and I think uh, there's also a sequence as you do that in terms of, you, you know, I like to start on the customer side and really understand the market because, in the end, that should be driving and working backwards into any technology or company. You know, I have learned that a lot of some of the companies I was asked to go into, in particular, in some of the technology areas, were companies that felt very good about their technology, but that was their sole focus, uh, as opposed to really understanding it. It might be great technology, but can you sell it at a price to make profit and be competitive? So I think I think those things around assumptions are important. I, I also think in terms of learning, there's a um, there's a time frame uh, that you have to take action. So one of the things I've learned in the hard way is, you know, I as I build teams or as I took over teams, I saw some things and my gut told me, you know, it's not going to work with this individual, or you know, it's you know, it's someone that may have been with the company a long time. And so, um, you know, some of my biggest m- mistakes were the ones where I didn't take action early yeah. enough, where I I should have acted much earlier, but I was um, trying to give someone or an individual a second chance or trying to think only about the good uh because that was my nature um you know thinking about only the good and so i think that i think moving more quickly when i think you have to actually does a service to both the individual and to the company you know so i think that's a second thing and i you know the third thing uh and my father taught me this and this really gets to companies and gets into fundraising you know, he always told me, he said, they asked the wealthy man how he got so wealthy. And he said, I always sold too soon. And, and it's interesting, because that applies to whether you're fundraising and thinking about dilution. And, you know, I don't want to take that dilution. But, um, you, you know, this gets into things around, you know, when someone's offering money, and given you can't see the future, you should, you should really take it. And having that money in the bank gives you the flexibility to live to fight another day versus risking, and trying to wait for the perfect deal or less dilution. Uh, take the money, build it, and and you know that dilution in the end uh, uh, should be a, a small impact in in what you can achieve by by keeping the company going. That's amazing. So
0: so obviously one thing led to the next, and uh, you ended up you know starting your latest baby, your 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 company now that you're running Energy Vault. But I I want to ask you. I mean, obviously you you were involved with Idea Labs with Bill Gross for quite some time, and. And obviously, you know, things uh, ended up um, working out now for you guys to really get together
1: and 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 do this company. But how did you meet Bill? Well, I met Bill because I was recruited by Corn Ferry that Idealab had hired. So Bill had hired to recruit for a CEO role of one of his uh, renewable energy companies, and I-, I met him, and we spent a good deal of time together. And unfortunately, the timing didn't work out because I had other things going on with other companies um and he needed to um to move in uh, quite quickly so the timing didn't work out but what was great was Bill Bill stayed in touch we we, we really hit it off and he really appreciated I think you know the, the 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 things that I thought about in running a company versus where he focuses in ideation and um and, and incubation of new ideas uh versus the you know taking something along to actually decide that this should become a company and we should go try to build it and Bill Uniquely has been very successful. Idealab, um, about a third of the 150 companies he's created has either been sold to a strategic or um, or gone public. And as you know in the startup world very well, Alejandro, that's a that's a great record where one third of your companies actually have that outcome. So I really uh, appreciated staying in touch with him over the years. He, he bounced ideas off me, and when it came to energy storage, he I'll never forget it. Uh, Bill called me and he said, hi, Rob, how are you doing? Um, I don't know where you're located right now, but I have this penultimate new idea for energy storage, and I want you to be the CEO. And <laughs> it just, it really went from there. And there were so many coincidences. I was in I was in Switzerland, his technologist, he was collaborating with, and the engineering team happened to be in the same part of Switzerland. So that was just a coincidence. And I'm like, you know, this has to be the one. And of course, energy storage being something that that I knew from spending some time in energy and renewables and what was happening in the world with climate change was going to be something very important.
0: So then what was that process? I mean, how, how did you guys think about like bringing this to life and, and really putting it in the works?
1: Well, what was fantastic about when Bill called me is it was still in the concept stage. So he was still ideating, if I can use that term, the concept and so it was a great time to get involved and he had a technologist another co-founder of ours it was myself Bill, and the, what, what today is our cto that came together at the stage when it was important to get the concept right and ensure that also you had enough on the market input and the economics that that we could solve a problem that hadn't been solved by the way in energy storage and do something uh that didn't hurt the environment and, and economical and and we really felt like we were onto something with getting through uh, this concept to a, a final architecture that we said you know this now should be a company because we're gonna we want to raise some more seed funding invest in and start to take it to the explore stage in more detail.
0: So then so then tell us about the business model here of Energy Bolt. How do you guys make money?
1: Well, look, we in solving the problem, what did what did we do? Um, there were a few things that were important to us. One is speed. So we saw the problem as as coming. It was now, we saw the data. You know, the the world wasn't sold on it yet, on climate change was happening. So this is back in, you know, 17, 18. Um, So speed was important. Secondly, it was really important that we we solve this economic equation. Meaning for us, that meant um, having something that when you can combine it with renewables that are intermittent, so wind and solar, if you really wanna replace base load power from fossil, you need to be able to have base load predictable power and since wind and solar is intermittent you need storage and when you combine the cost of wind and solar which today is super cheap much lower than fossil but but storage is costs a multiple of four or five right uh, of that you, you need something when you add that equation of renewable plus the ability to store it and therefore deliver it on demand that has to be competitive with fossil fuel and there was nothing even close so for us the second thing was economics and the third was the environmental and sustainability. We didn't wanna create anything in creating energy storage that was gonna hurt the environment at the same time, like we see with some other like chemical battery technologies today. So so that's how we, we focused there. Um, we were able to balance and use our innovation um, to get something ultra low cost, for example, not using concrete, leverage something that's proven 90% of all energy storage today is is these large hydroelectric dams. So gravity, so pumped hydro. Uh, leverage, take that, but make it better. Where you could actually scale and build it anywhere without dependency on landscape or or hurting the environment like it did, or the use of concrete. So that was off limits to us. So we used material science to to innovate and use alternate materials that didn't hurt the environment, and we used software and, and the, the the computing power and, and AI to to use automation to combine with this conventional physics to create this breakthrough, and that's. That's what um, we focused on. We, we did it at, at a one-quarter scale first, improved some of the fundamentals. I think that step was important, Alejandro, to, to get to a scale that you knew could be a reliable predictor of what a commercial scale would look like. When we did that and announced the company, um, we got on the radar of some of the largest funds like SoftBank, so the, the largest VC fund in the world, and then, um, and then went right, we, we used those funds to go right to commercial scale, which is what we just completed uh, uh, last year. And how was that
0: fundraising process? I mean, how much capital have you guys raised today?
1: Uh, Well, we uh, we announced the uh, that Series B at 110 million, and that followed uh, Series A of about seven million. Okay, and then there was some minor seed funding, uh, and um, and that's what we've announced. We we did announce um, Saudi Aramco as both a um, strategic partner and and an investor. We did not announce uh, the amount is agreed with them. but um but, but essentially those were the the public announcements and as uh, uh, as you might understand energy is such a massive market in this problem of getting renewables that you can store and to replace baseload given you know all these events we're seeing and we saw Texas last year and people lost their lives you have the rolling blackouts in California but even in Germany right this past week all the flooding and the lives lost so these extreme events it's the the urgency is there so i think the the funding and, and getting enough capital to really scale and, and get renewables um, and get fossil fuels uh, more in a balanced part of the grid is is fundamental.
0: And how would you say that? Um, because as they say, you know, being, in re- being at the right time in history is essential when you're building and scaling a company. You know, it seems that with everything that is going on with the environment, you know, it sounds like, you know, wind may be blowing behind your guys' back. Is that right?
1: Yeah, look, Alejandro, it's I I've never seen this conundrum coming together and and I've been really in four industries now, right? Between diversified energy, healthcare, tech, uh, telecom and uh, and then going back to um to now renewables in a sense uh, back to energy. I've never seen this confluence of right product, right market, the world really getting religion around solving this problem. I mean, we even have, you know, China even putting a stake in the ground and making commitments publicly um, and everybody seems to be pulling those commitments to get to net carbon neutral. And so absolutely this dynamic of um, just this last eight months. And and I think some of that, Alejandro, honestly, has come from what we all have been living through with the pandemic, meaning the fact that that we didn't think, I don't think, or at least I didn't think, I don't want to speak for other people, but I, I honestly don't think people predicted that a virus like this could, could actually um, shut the world down. And, and forced to us to change how we live our daily lives and, and how we do business and even our ability to socially interact. I mean, so I think people really have been impacted by that. And then when you, I think when they think about th- this concept of climate change and the fact that you talk about a global phenomenon where you have to unite, just like in COVID, we, we had to unite as a world, right? And it's difficult to do. Think about climate change where there's no borders of it, meaning countries that do the most polluting that polluting goes out to the world. So I think there's this interesting corollary between that happening and then all of a sudden this the, the companies coming forward, the largest ones in the world that are putting stakes in the ground and saying, I'm only going to buy renewable power. It's got to be green. The supply chain has to be sustainable. I, I, I've just never seen anything like all this come together. And of course, having a product focused on solving utility scale storage um, and, uh, in a sustainable way, of course, we, we feel great about that. So
0: imagine, Robert, that um, you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world that is five years later, right? Imagine it's a tremendous news. Maybe, you know, like you had to catch up on sleep from all the sleepless nights with your babies. (laughs) Uh, But basically, you wake up in a world where the vision of Energy Vault is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Well, I I think this ties to our mission Uh, which our mission is the decarbonization of the planet. And while I know in five years, to stick with your question, we won't be fully decarbonized. I do believe uh, that uh, we will have made a lot of progress um, in in an ideal world if we're successful. um, We will be accelerating the deployment of renewables and uh, uh, toward our, our vision of being the preeminent energy storage company, of course, but really core to our mission of the decarbonization and making that progress where uh, between our technology, by the way, and and others like carbon capture, or looking at leveraging the sun for making fuel uh, and things like green hydrogen. I mean, I, I really think um, this this equation that we're gonna be solving for uh, around decarbonization, that to me, that would mean success to make meaningful progress to reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions.
0: So imagine that you get into a time machine. Robert, and, and, and I'm able to transport you back in time, perhaps to that moment that you were starting to be recruited for the first time to, to, to really lead companies, you know, all you know, on your own, obviously with leading your team. Huh? But uh, imagine you go back in time, you have a chat with your younger self, and in that chat, you have the opportunity of giving yourself one piece of advice, perhaps given all the wealth of knowledge that you've been able to acquire over the years, especially now with Energy Vault, And you're able to give yourself one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know
1: now? Uh, By the way, it's a great question. I'm thinking about back to when I first started running my first company. So the first time where I was recruited, where it was all, it was me reporting to the board. Okay. And the advice, I that was a very important time. And through making, um, you know, some mistakes that, that you make and you learn, of course, but the advice I would give myself is to go back and say, listen, you it's fundamental for you to over-communicate with the board and, um, uh, and ensure that all the stakeholders are aligned with everything um, you're doing to manage and progress the company. And, and I say that uh, because I, was a, I moved very quickly in the corporate world because I was, you know, I was blessed with being um, a, a good leader, a good communicator with people building and growing and being able to, you know, differentiate and position technology, decide, you know, what was going to make it connecting with the economics in the market with what technology uh, we should deploy. So all of that I was, I was very, very good at, but I was never forced to think about the other stakeholders that, um, that really need to be kept. um, I, I think very well informed in a certain loop and even going back to them when there's, you know, when there's issues that you see to really partner versus just solving it on my own. So, so that's the one thing I think I would I would go back and and coach myself to be uh, uh, very sensitive and engaging um, and over communicate in any times where you're making big decisions in the company to to take it in what may be the right direction. But something where I think having that um, good transparency and communication is fundamental. And what
0: would you say is one book that you wish you would have read sooner?
1: Uh, that's a very good question because there's so many good ones um, out there. I, I I really like one of the early books I read in the in the in the early two thousands of Good to Great. Oh, nice. And I think I think having that a little bit earlier and really thinking about um, what can be acceptable performance versus really setting different expectations in the in the company and I and, and that book and, and I looked at that and as I worked at a company uh, that you may know called Danaher, which I, I think is one of the best operational companies in the world and and the way they, the, the cadence they have in not only their process for how they acquire companies, which is how they build it and think about growth and building businesses with a, 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 um, a rigor on the operational side. Um, I, I When I think about that in setting expectations, and, and, and continuous improvement. I mean, I think there's a, a really neat equation there and that's, I, I wish I would have had that, those insights a lot earlier in my career. Amazing. So, uh, Robert, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, look, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. So I think the best way is just to uh, send me an invite and we can connect. And then I, I typically will, uh, interact initially through there and, um, and, uh, and happy to, uh, to go from there and, uh, and, and meet, meet people and, and be helpful. Amazing. Well, Robert, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. Great, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to also meet you. And I look forward to your book, by the way, because I think there's going to be some some insights uh, insights there uh, as well. So I'll look forward to uh, to a good evening and a glass of wine to, uh, to read through that. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe
0: button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.